0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: Hey, this is Eli Sussman giving you an unexpected breaking news segment here at the front of Fishology reacting to the signing of Johnny Cueto as reported overnight by John Heyman of MLB Network. Thankfully, my dog woke me up in the middle of the night barking about something unrelated and I checked my phone. So I've been able to get an early start processing this fascinating move. Uh, Most of this episode was recorded by myself, Luis Adio Weiss, and Daniel Rodriguez on Sunday. That was when the Marlins were considered frontrunners. For Quato, as reported by Grant Kiefer, our own Fish Stripe staffer. We knew it was a possibility, and now it has come together. As reported by Craig Mish, it is a $8.5 million guarantee, $6 million salary for 2023, and a $10.5 million club option next year with a $2.5 million buyout. In the spirit of physiology, I'll be sticking to the numbers here. He is a fascinating case looking at the numbers. You know, for his career. He's been great, you know, a two-time All-Star, a one-time Cy Young Award winner runner-up. He had a couple years in there where he was a legitimate ace, um, but those days are far behind him. Uh, For the better part of his Giants contract from 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, he missed a lot of time with injury, and even when he was on the mound, um, he was, any way you slice it, kind of a bottom-of-the-rotation type of performer. Then, here in 2022, with the White Sox, originally signed a minor league deal with them, and he made very good on that deal, spending most of the season in their rotation 24 starts, a 3.35 ERA, 158 in the third innings pitched. So, what sticks out most about that is how deep into games he was working this past year. That's about six and a half innings per start, and that is something you rarely see in baseball these days outside of. Sandy Alcantara It's impressive that he was able to do it Because he is no longer the same Doesn't have the same tool set That he had a decade ago With the Reds He ranked in the 8th percentile Among stat cast qualifiers And strikeout rate this past year Only in the 3rd percentile in whiff rate Only a handful of pitchers in the whole sport That got swings and misses Less often than Cueto did This has been a conscious sacrifice From him He has become a kitchen sink type of pitcher, five different pitch types that he uses them all very frequently. Usage rates of over 16% on the sinker, the four-seamer, the changeup, the cutter, and the slider this past year. Yeah, that's He's as unpredictable as it gets for somebody like that. A couple interesting parallels between him and Sandy Alcantara, where you look at that unpredictability of how he uses his pitches and also about his embracing of pitching to contact and how much he prioritizes efficiency.
2: This on the ground, of shortstop Garcia fading into the throw, and he starts a nice double play. Nobody out, and he got out
1: of that. Now Luis Arise for his pitch hunting. It's three to one on that ground ball. This past year, a career best in 3.3, 3.63 pitches per plate appearance. 3.63, league average is right around Four, he gets quick outs, or sometimes he allows quick hits, but he makes it quick either way. That allows him to work deep into games without concerns about fatigue or pitch count. Going back to his individual pitches, the sinker usage spiked to 23.7%. About a quarter of his pitches were sinkers. That's his highest usage in a decade of that pitch. And that's a pitch that very naturally um, is easier to make contact with, but not as easy to square up. As a result, he used his four-seamer a lot less, but when he did use his four-seamer very effective by Baseball Savant's run value, it was at 1.8 runs better than average per 100 pitches thrown. And so just to put that into context, on a per-pitch basis, his four-seamer was as valuable as Alec Manoa, as Devin Williams, as Justin Verlander, exactly tied with all those pitchers, in run value per 100 four-seamers thrown this past year. He has learned how to command it very well to the edges of the zone and more often than not, up in the zone. Yet he still gets a ton of horizontal break on it compared to the typical four-seamer. 12.1 inches of horizontal break on that pitch. That's elite compared to what that pitch usually moves like from a hitter's perspective. Out of all his pitches that I mentioned before, the cutter is the one that you wonder may be getting shelved in the near future. He tried to use it to keep lefties off balance, but really wasn't that effective. He allowed almost half of his total home runs on that cutter. So perhaps that will be an adjustment coming to the Marlins as they simplify the pitch mix a little bit. Uh, we should note his age. I mean, is going to his age 37 season, and you don't see a whole lot of guys out there that are qualified starters at age 37. But he's signing at the same offseason as Corey Kluber. And uh, they actually have quite a bit in common at this stage of their careers, and that's why we expect the contract to look similar to, to Corey Kluber's deal with the Red Sox. And as we're all anticipating, it'd be cool if they kept Cueto, if they kept everybody else around Cueto informed. formed what would probably be the deepest pitching staff in all of baseball, and in my opinion, would probably be the best, most successful Marlins rotation in all of, in franchise history. If they kept everybody together, that's not what we expect. Every indication is that they're planning to trade one of their other controllable starters in order to shore up the offense. With Cueto, this is a fascinating gamble on him to not necessarily repeat what he did last year, but come in relatively close range of it, and that pitching in Lone Depot Park, which is more pitcher-friendly environment than um, guaranteed right field, will... Um, Help him continue to keep balls from leaving the yard. That's a key part of his value: suppressing home runs and having his defenders behind him make plays on balls in play. But this one, it's it's a really cool move, and it is encouraging to see the Marlins continuing to spend money. You know, we weren't sure how much of a commitment they would continue to make. Um, we're gonna have additional coverage, of course, on Fish Tribes about all the implications of this and about setting some realistic expectations for Cueto. But this upcoming. Uh, episode of Fishology as originally scheduled. A lot of talk about Gene Segura and some trade possibilities for this team. So I've been Eli Sussman and enjoy the rest of Fishology.
2: Hello and welcome to this episode of Fishology. For those of you who may be new in Fishology, this is where we go in-depth in advanced analytical stats on Marlins players. Tonight we do have a very special episode, but let me first introduce you Our two guests, first stop, we have Mr. Louis Adeo Weiss. Louis, how are we
0: feeling? Feeling good. Some Marlins news has actually filtered through to us, and we're here to talk about it. Awesome. And, of course, our other guest, the
2: man behind it all, Mr. Eli Sussman. Eli, what's happening?
0: Big fan
1: of the show, Daniel. (laughs) I've heard every episode, (laughs) maybe a couple times over. So it's nice to be on this side of it to cover our usual or new range of topics. This should be a fun one. Yeah,
2: yeah. We're going to be discussing actually the first signing for the Marlins this off season, our first time to discuss a new player uh, for the team. And then also we're going to go in depth in some trades that might, could maybe happening for the Marlins and maybe how that really uh, relegates to um, the other players currently in the Marlins roster. But first we got to talk about the signing, Mr. Gene Segura from the Philadelphia Phillies. $17 million for two years. Gene Segura last season had an OPS of 7.23, a 104 OPS plus. So just barely above the league average. Um, Lewis, tell me about Gene Segura, how he fits with the Marlins, your thoughts on the signing, and maybe how you see him fitting at third base.
0: Um, I mean, before we delve too deeply into the numbers, I mean, it's it was nice to see that he's already down in Miami working out with the team. You know, I believe Jazz posted something that they were working out together, him, Avi, and Sandy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I think he's, you know, he's a professional hitter in maybe the loosest of terms. He's a good bat-to-ball guy. You like the fact that he, you know, he doesn't strike out he you know he does a lot of things well i the way i see segura at this point and the way i've seen him maybe the last couple of years is that he's a really nice complimentary player and a line drive base it in into right field garcia
2: gets to it here comes harper the throw to the plate is not in time gene segura is just won it in the bottom of the ninth inning with a line drive single to right center field Brings home Bryce Harper and the Phillies
0: win it three to two. In recent years, he's made that transition, you know, out of being, you know, primarily a shortstop to that of a second baseman and, you know, one of the better second basemen. I believe Eli said on a previous stream that his throwing arm is so good. And, um, you know, if you peruse Baseball, so long, you can kind of see he's in about the 61st percentile in arm strength that you any concerns you maybe had about the idea of him being the Marlins primary third baseman, because of course they have jazz at second. And it seems at this point, barring, you know, a move, um, Carlos Correa, knock on wood, if that were to magically happen, if the Mets thing falls apart and the Marlins want to explore that, uh, that idea, um, you know, Rojas is going to be the shortstop, so I guess Sergura lines up as your third baseman. And I believe Isaac noted it before too. Sergura's experience at the position is relatively limited. I believe it's a 24-game sample size that he played in the COVID-shortened season, so not too much, though. Um, you know, referring back to Eli's mark or note that he had a has a better arm than most, um, you know, players at as a second baseman. It leads me to believe that I think he could translate pretty well. As a third baseman, and you know, you know, this is an audio-only podcast, though we'll have some clips on Twitter for you guys. Eli has some footage of uh, Segura making some throws at the diamond in that COVID-shortened year, and yeah, you know, he's always been a pretty good defender at shortstop. You know, transitioned well at second base, so you know, part of me believes that he could transition based on what the metrics say about throwing arm, um, the fact that he was among the elite defenders by outs above average. You know, you feel confident that. He'll give you a league average bat with, you know, good defense, even if he's, you know, slightly below league average. Brian Anderson had his struggles last year there. That third baseman or position for the Marlins was in flux. So, again, it's an upgrade. It's a marginal upgrade, though, and that's what I kind of wrote down ahead of this podcast was that, you know, like I said, complimentary player. He's an upgrade over what you had before, and he's durable. He's going to stay healthy, though he did miss um, time last year. I believe he was limited to something like 98 games. But yeah. when he was on the field, he was still a average to slightly above league average hitter. And with the offensive ineptitude that has plagued this team, I think the Marlins will take that.
1: Eli? Yeah, what I want to point out, I guess with the injury real quick, is that Almost all that time missed was due to a hit by pitch. Uh, not, not Actually, I should correct myself. I think it was a bunt attempt, and he missed fired trying to square around, and it hit his finger or his thumb or something. And that, was, that kept him out for almost two months. As you point out, aside from that, he's been really extremely durable, and that's one key difference between him and basically everybody that played for the Marlins last year. They had so many players. Go out with soft tissue injuries, recurring injuries, and Segura is more reliable. I did want to start with the defense, as you see, as we see from this video. I put this together. This is in an article that I have on Fish Traps about whether Segura could play third base, because I think the biggest question is just his reaction time. When you're at third base, you are a lot closer to home plate than when you play at second base, especially for a guy that in these recent years, he's been the second baseman is usually the one in the shift that plays pretty deep into the outfield at times, this is a big adjustment in terms of reaction time, which is why I wanted to like review examples of plays where from 2020 when he was fielding hard hit balls from a close distance and the results were kind of mixed, right? So like sometimes he has the arm strength to make up for being a little bit sloppy. Other times he looks completely normal either way. I think it's a big question between whether this guy who was at least an average, if not a slightly better than average second baseman, is still going to be that good at third base. And I don't know if we've talked about this too much on Fishology, but not every position is created equally offensively as well. When you move from second base to third base, the burden is a lot heavier on you to produce. You see third baseman across the league, the expectation is that you hit for a lot more power than when you are a middle infielder. And that needs to be baked into this situation. This is a guy in Segura with one exception in his entire career. He's not somebody that has really hit for anything close to good power. That's kind of been a limitation in his game. So he's got to make up for that one way or the other in order for this to be a big impact. And the reality for a guy that is about to turn 33 is that, um, you know, he's probably not going to be a conventional third baseman offensively. He's going to rely more on hit than he is on power. And, you know, his ceiling in terms of how much value he brings to your club Is going to be a little bit limited in that sense. Uh, The one positive I just wanted to point out is that in particular, when it comes to being a hitter, he thrives against lefties. And that was something that was such a big weakness for this Marlins team last year. They were the worst team in the majors at hitting against lefties. And he has this really encouraging track record every single year for, I think, six consecutive years, you see, where he's been a great hitter against lefties. If it ever comes to the point... If not in 2023, then at some time during the course of this contract where he's not a true everyday guy, at least you could put him in the lineup against lefties and count on him to put together a good combination of hits and also a little bit more slug than he does ordinarily. That's the fit. That's kind of the fallback plan. You sign a free agent, you hope for the best, um, but you want to also prepare for some regression. And I think in the very least, you could trust this guy to rake against lefties.
2: Yeah, and with Gene Segura, you mentioned his offense, his defense. Um, how do you think his offense is going to translate to Lone Depot because it's one of the, the hardest uh, places to hit for a hitter? It's very pitcher-friendly. Um, Lewis, how, how do you think his skill sets uh, are going to translate to Lone Depot where you're not going to get a lot of home runs, where it can be really hard to place the ball strategically? How do you see Segura translating
0: to Lone Depot? Compared To the to one that early? I think – maybe works in his favor and albeit he was a lot younger when this happened was the time that he did spend in Seattle. And as we know, Seattle historically is a pitcher friendly park, but I believe Segura had his last season where he was over 10% above the league average, as far as OPS plus goes. So that's encouraging. And I believe both was it either two or three seasons that he spent with the Mariners. He was an above average hitter whilst, you know, having to move, you know, still playing a very good shortstop uh, alongside Robinson Cano um so that if that's any consolation it may lead me to believe that like he'll be okay um I don't know as far as the batted ball profile goes if the shift being banned will help him I mean obviously I think this will be a year maybe where BABIP is kind of um in flux and it's a lot elevated because of the shift regulations and fielders having um to position certain ways they can't you know be on the outfield grass second baseman can't be playing over on the field uh, on like the left field side of the of the diamond and you know all these kind of things that would uh kind of go into that so that may help him um at least offset a little bit of that as far as the you know him just like I said when referring right to Babbitt he's gonna put the ball in play because he just routinely doesn't strike out he was almost you know bordering on the 90th percentile and strikeout rate um the opposite of that is that you also don't um, get a lot of walks. He historically has been a very, very aggressive hitter. Although he's one of those kind of Arise poor man's Luis Arise. You know, even Starling Marte, where like you're gonna put the ball in play a lot. You're gonna get a lot of hits. He doesn't have the speed of a Starling Marte, but you know he, you know he finds holes, and that's maybe the biggest thing you can find. And it'll, it'll. I'm sure it'll marginal. Like I said, it's a marginal move. It'll cr- help create maybe 20, 30 more runs for the Marlins over the course of the season, and. You know, whether that equates to two or three wins, I mean, he should easily justify the value of his contract. Um, more on the bat, though, too. Like, if you think about what Eli was saying, look at the scope of the National League East as a whole. If Carlos Correa's deal, in in all likelihood, it gets reworked with the Mets, he's going to project to be their third baseman because they already have another Gold Glove shortstop in Lindor. So, and then you move over to you know the state that borders us in Georgia and Austin Riley. Um, who's locked up there long term is a perennial four five one player. It seems like at this point he's like an eight thirty to eight fifty OPS plus guy, legit power, good glove guy. Um, the the division as a whole, like you you know, he's probably the third best third baseman in that division with what the Nationals have Alec bone. we don't know if he's even a third baseman long term he's probably just a DH on a roster full of DHs so um I think even in the context of his division he won't even be like the second or the third best offensive player but I think he can still provide you a lot of value given that he does several little things well the way that you know Marte does although he, like I said you know it's not you know what your numbers looks like it's kind of or it's not you know, how you get there. It's just the fact that you get there. And if he's an above average offensive player, I think for what they're paying him, it'll be, you know, he's more of a sure thing than what Dr- Brandon Drury was. And if you think about the fact that Drury was kind of an outlier for most of his career, you know, he was very hit or miss, but he was versatile. Segura presents you that with a little bit less versatility. He's never going to play the outfield for you unless you really need to. And you're in a pinch. Um, he's never done it at the big league level, as far as I'm aware, but you know, the, I think the bat has a more consistent track record that even in a pitcher-friendly ballpark. And if you look at um, baseball Reference's park factors, go to MLB.com. There's information on that as well. You'll see that, you know, Miami does tend to be pretty pitcher-friendly because of the fences, the uh, length of the outfield and all that stuff. But I don't know. I think, you know, and we haven't espoused on it enough. I think the shift ban and um, – Time in between clocks, the time in between pitches that's kind of in place will allow for more balls in play. And I think a hitter like Segura, who doesn't strike out, as I previously noted, he will thrive on that. And again, I think that'll help offset some of those deficiencies in his game. Well, now I have a perfect stat
1: for you on the shift and why it doesn't impact Segura one way or the other in the entire StatCast era according to Baseball Savant. He has been shifted against a total of 11 times in seven, eight years. There's been basically no regular player in baseball that gets shifted less often than Segura does. I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't feel like he would be all the way at that end of the spectrum, but he is. He's he's basically gets shifted against once or twice a year, and he hasn't had to worry about that in that sense that gives the Marlins some peace of mind. that They feel like he's not going to notice the difference in the rule chains, basically, because he, they weren't using it against him in the first place. So that's one thing. I also wanted to go into what you mentioned about the combination of him having great bats, ball skills, but also being kind of undisciplined at times. And it works for him um, compared to somebody like Avi Garcia or um, a lot of the young Marlins hitters we saw come up at the end of the year in struggle is that When Segura chases outside the zone, he still makes contact at a pretty elite rate. So they keep track of that chase contact percentage on fan graphs of several places. And last year, Segura, about three quarters of the time, 75.4%, when he swings at pitches outside the zone last year, he made contact. So how good is that? That is basically 1% below Jose Altuve. That is about 1% above, who else do we have here? Alex Bregman. It's a little better than Alex Bregman. It's a little bit better than Justin Turner. And it is almost identical to somebody we know, Joey Wendell, almost identical to Joey Wendell. And that's what people love about Wendell is that he's a professional hitter that he does, even though aesthetically, these guys are a lot different hit from different sides of the plate, et cetera. Um, That is one skill they have. That's very much in common. And that's one that I think from a fan's perspective, people will enjoy. That he's able to do what he needs to do to make productive outs, and so the other side of that is that if you chase too often, you make bad quality contact. You risk grounding into double plays, which Segura did, I think, sixteen times last year. Um, Not every sometimes the difference between a strikeout and a non strikeout out gets overstated. You know, there's only so many balls in play that are actually productive outs. So that's the plus and minus of it with somebody um, like Segura. But the bottom line is that you put it all together and you look at his history and it's kind of a a net positive. You know, usually he does a little bit more positive than negative with those balls in play. And um, even with these rule changes, I just expect him to be kind of the same dude that we're used to seeing.
2: Yeah, and and with Segura, I'm looking at some more of his um, advanced stats. I, I think Lewis can tell me a little more what these numbers mean. Uh, for his babab having a 307. Lewis, when I see Bab of 307, is that something to worry about or is that something uh, good to see from Segura?
0: I believe, Eli, if I'm not mistaken, you may have that in front of you. The league average Babup is generally around 290, if I'm not mistaken. So right. it tends to it tends to illustrate with Segura that and obviously Bab of is independent of home runs. So you're not going to be exploring, you know, you know, the 10 or so home runs he hit last year. So, you know, if 30 plus percent of the time he's putting the ball in play, obviously, to simplify the metrics, um, what this metric illustrates, he's getting a hit. He's getting on base. Um, and even if you look at his batting average on pitch types, he was, you know, the expected stats are a little down on him because the bat speed isn't what you want. But, you know, you know, hit 294 in fastballs. He handled breaking balls relatively well, hit 289. But the expected stats are a little lower on him. Um, sure, I think, you know, and if you want to talk about what Eli was saying about the fact that he's very rarely shifted on, you know, an average of about one or two times a season, um, the quality of contact being down and the fact that, you know, he tends to just have a very um, consistent profile with batted ball data. That could that may scare some people because if he hits balls at defenders a lot more, that bab will drop. I don't think it'll approach maybe Max Kepler levels of um, BABIP, um malnourishment. But again, he'll you know he'll have to get I guess he'll have to get creative. I mean, whether that's being slightly more selective and Eli had the metrics up about how he well he hits lefties, he looks like he does tend to walk a, is that walk to striker rate is closer to one to one. But, you know, he's still very aggressive um, regardless of what hand the ball is coming out of. So, yeah, a 305 BAP is above the league average. But, again, it still illustrates that he just has a knack for finding holes. And, you know, again, whether that is a benefit to him with these relaxed defensive rules um, remains to be seen. But, you know, again, I think you should, you know, fans in an offseason that has been kind of filled with um, expectations that haven't been met. You know, a marginal improvement like this while the, uh, you know, the big gets are kind of gone off the free agent shelves is it's, you know, it's a consolation, but it's, you know, he's a good player. And I think he'll be a value at six and a half million. It's really like a no risk kind of thing for him.
2: Yeah. And and for Gene Segura, I wanted to ask Eli, um, for Segura, where do you see him in the batting order? Because I'm just looking at some of his stats. He played um, the majority of last season between the 7th and 8th in the lineup. Mm. I was wondering if that's something you see him with the Marlins. Do you see him down there with the lineup or do you see him more towards the beginning like he was um with Milwaukee and Seattle?
1: I mean, my first expectation would be in the number 2 spot right behind Jazz. On roster resource, they're pretty good at a projecting this stuff, they have him at the leadoff spot ahead of Jazz. But I think from watching this team every day and from actually you know, being around Jazz, we know how much he loves being the leadoff guy. So I expect I, – I think he could just be in the number two spot right behind Jazz. The fact that it's a lefty and a righty alternating between those two. I mean, what's kind of tricky is that I mean, this is a first-time manager and Skip Schumacher. We have no idea what he's going to do <laughs> putting together these lineups. It's a great – I mean, that's something that we would have – a good educated guess on if the Marlins didn't just change managers and basically everybody involved in the offensive side of their coaching staff as well. So that's a short answer. Is that I, I don't know. I mean, it's Skip is, <laughs> is different. They brought him in to be to put up lineups differently than have been put together in the last seven years under Don Mattingly. But my first guess would be like in the number two spot. But that is a good question, and I think that's something that um, I'll probably want to look back at how the Cardinals put together lineups last year with Skip as their uh, bench coach, whatever. I think that was his exact role there. I think that would give us more insight as to what they do. But the fact that they made this kind of investment in him and um, based on who they already have in this organization, I mean, outside of Jazz, you know, these everyday guys, um, Segura, traditionally, he kind of fits to the T what you look for in a number two
0: hitter. Yeah. So I think we understand now it's kind of generally been said, and we've seen it even with the Angels for all their shortcomings. Mike Trout has kind of transitioned into the number three hitter that just tends to hit second. I think the Reds have done it for a while with Joey Votto too. If you actually, Danny and Eli, if you look at his um splits by or position uh, or, or where he hits in the batting lineup, he's a better hitter in the number three slot than he would be anywhere else by adjusted by OPS. He's got a career 788 OPS and, you know, what is it? It's about 200 plate appearances in the number three spot. So a, a smaller sample size than most other spots that he's hit. He has experience in every order, spot in the batting order. But I think if you're, if you're a big chemistry guy, and again, this is kind of eschewing numbers for a second, although there's obviously a corollary between the two, if you want to keep jazz happy and it seems like that this organization is hellbent on doing that because he is for a position player core that is, you know, I guess very non-existent because there's just very few guys that we see, you know, three, five years down the line that wanting to be with this team, or at least that we want to be with this team in, lo- in hopes of winning, like the way that Sherman has illustrated, he wants to do. Um, if culture is one thing that matters to you and you're invested in analytics and making your team better, do you think that they would flirt with the idea of, you know, moving Segura into the three spot? I mean, you can hit Garrett Cooper fourth. Um, you can maybe hit Avi fourth. You can kind of rotate those guys in and out. We know that, like the, you know, the idea of a cons- of, of a standard spot for a guy, though, you know, individual players will tell you, and they've told us before that they do prefer to hit a certain part place in the batting order because it uh, comes with a certain type of preparation and the way as far as how they game plan and everything and how they'll possibly be pitched. Um, do you think that's something they may experiment with during the season? Because again, like it may speak to maybe a power outage that's going on there because Segura isn't a prototypical number three hitter, but if you're gauging power production on a mere OPS basis, he's more productive there than he is at any other place in the batting order. I mean, you could look elsewhere. He's productive if you hit him fifth and realistically that could make sense. I mean, you probably have to hit Rojas second jazz first, you maybe hit Cooper, Avi third, um, rotate those guys three, four, and then you can hit Segura fifth where he has a lot more dis, um, experience of the plate. I believe it's over a thousand plus plate appearances in the number five spot, Seven eighty two OPS. That's better than what he's done over a full season in a while. Um, yeah, if that's something that works for him, sure. I think maybe again, you have to adjust to getting back to the conversation about the ball part, that there may be some slight regression there, but, even when he goes on the road, there's going to be, you know, stadiums that he's going to play in that are more hitter friendly. You know, he'll get some time in Philadelphia. Um, Washington, I believe sometimes is very, very hitter friendly Atlanta to an extent when it's not hundred plus degrees outside. So yeah, I mean, third is an option, but you know, fifth, maybe is a place that makes sense. I think it's just all about maximizing production. And I think we're going to have to wait more until spring training to kind of see what the new coaching staff kind of says, but It'd be interesting to pick the brains of those guys and maybe we'll do that um, if we get a chance to talk to some of them, you know, as the season creeps closer about what they plan to do with Segura and maybe just the lineup as a whole because it'll give us a better idea of what we may expect with the team overall. um, The final
1: thing I wanted to point out on Segura is that as you brought up with uh, Jazz and how important he is and the hope that he's going to be playing every single day and being a steady role, uh, the reality with him is that he's missed almost half of – the games he was supposed to play the last two years due to injury. And um, it's just you can't really count on him being there every single day. And that signing Segura initially, it seems that they'll slot him in at third base. I think another big factor in signing him is as being jazz insurance in case jazz gets hurt again and you're out of your everyday second baseman. Segura has played second base every single day for, what, the last three years with the exception of that – brief um, uh, experiments at third in 2020. He's a very experienced second baseman. He was playing as well as ever towards the postseason this past year. That in anticipation of Jazz missing time, the way that unfortunately he has the previous two years, this gives them a better backup plan at that position than they've ever had before. And that moves things around. If you have Segura playing second, then maybe Jordan Groshans gets a look in the majors. They invested quite a bit to acquire Groshans in the first place. Or maybe it means Joey Wendell, assuming he's still around, that he plays more consistently at that position. I think that's a big factor in why they made this deal, it, knowing that they want to be an improved team this year compared to last year. And one of the differences compared to last year is that you need to have better, uh, a deeper group of competent hitters. And Sakura is that. He could do it at multiple positions, even if it's initially at third base. I don't think enough people are mentioning this as something that I think went into the idea of signing him in the first place is having him being that really high-level jazz insurance.
0: Yeah, and it's a very apt point because, um, you know, best-case scenario, if both of them are healthy, and, again, we've never seen a full season of jazz um, beyond, you know, the 130 or so games he played in 2020. But, again, he missed extended time then. Then you can definitely project, you know, the Marlins, who were a 69-win team last year, to be you know 75 76 and if they do surprise us ahead of spring training when it's about five or so weeks before pitchers and catchers, you know, we could be looking at an outside chance at 80 wins. Again, I don't want to forecast anything yet. I think we should save predictions as more as things develop, you know. Um, but you know, you mentioned a guy and I think that's a good transition for us to go from um, Shigura to the likes of Joey Wendell. And that's a name that's been mentioned recently in Trade Talks because, as has been reported by the likes of Ken Rosenthal, the Marlins have been in conversation with the Red Sox, who did just extend their third baseman long-term, Rafael Devers. Um, was, I believe it was 11 years, $331 million deal. Um, discussion for Tristan Cassis. And we had had a lot of back and forth about this. All of us did the fact that once, uh, once uh, Devers was locked up, that it would maybe null the idea of the possibility of the Marlins trading for Cassis, given the fact that obviously if you invest that much in a player, besides, you know, and we even saw the Marlins do this when they extended Stanton and then they proceeded to lock up Yelich and, you know, they had a burgeoning core of guys before, you know, a lot of things transpired that we won't touch on here. Um, That appears a commitment to winning and they made multiple moves this offseason to address their team. Obviously they addressed the bullpen with Jansen they signed Kluber to be in the rotation to replace Michael wako effectively. Um, they signed Justin Turner. You know, the Marlins need a first baseman. It's no question. Garrett Cooper, while on the field, is a fine hitter. We know that, you know, he's not durable. Um, and A guy that I wrote about previously, a piece on Fish Stripes, talking about trading pitching for um, position players. Um, but in recent, ta- in recent days, we've seen that the likes of Miguel Rojas, the team's longtime shortstop, And Joey Wendell, who they acquired last season, um, they have been talked about as names that could possibly be pieces in a potential Cassis trade. Now, Eli, Danny, I want your takes on this. Um, Do you think, I mean, obviously we know the profile that Wendell brings. He's an above average defender at both second and third base. He, you know, de facto third baseman if they don't sign Segura, I think, especially now given that Charles LeBlanc was DFA'd, to make room for segura um we'll see how that kind of transpires later this week when we find out whether he's traded or he clears waivers um do you think that wendell is obviously do you think he's an upgrade over the likes of say christian arroyo they have kiki hernandez who's an out primarily their center fielder but we saw with his time in la can move around can play pretty much all over the field um of those two, who would you be most okay parting with, and who do you think is the better player, I think, to deal from between Rojas and um, Ro- and Wendell in the event that we could maybe acquire the likes of Acasus, who would definitely be an upgrade, though his experience at the big league level is limited for sure.
1: I mean, to me, I, I think on both counts, it would have to be Wendell as the one that is more tradable and um, is a little bit more difficult to replace just because of the level of defense that Rojas played last year at shortstop. It wasn't just good defense. It was arguably as good as anybody in the sport. Um, both guys, for anybody that's unclear, they're on the same contractual status. Both of them are going to be free agents after next year, and their salaries are almost identical too. Rojas making $5 million. Wendell will be determined in arbitration, but it's expected to be right around $5 million as well for, for him. And with Rojas, yeah, it's a little bit difficult because – with him certainly under mattingly it felt like he had a certain he brought certain intangibles to the table as someone that's been here for a long long time and now that so many of the pieces have changed around him you like wonder exactly how much authority he carries in that clubhouse and how much people really listen to him with all due respect um that being said you know that defense is just really difficult to replace and and i felt what I don't think was harped on enough is that he played through a very painful wrist injury for the entire second half of last year. So I feel that those results that he had offensively aren't totally indicative of who he is right now. He's a guy that despite really hideous, like batted ball metrics, he, he gets the job done historically when he's healthy. Like he's somebody that does hit for a moderate amount of average and just enough doubles power to like get him, within striking distance of being league average by shortstop standards. And there's a lot of value in that. He's already shown in the past that even as a pending free agent, like he's willing to extend his deal with this team, as long as um he, he really puts a premium on being in Miami and then having that continuity in there. And as I brought up with Segura, you know, there's just a little bit of, what should I say? Um, redundancy between Wendell and segura um i mean on ideally on a certain a team of a certain payroll level you'd like to keep them all there really shouldn't be there's not a necessity to get rid of any of these guys but you could like just see how this has been building up with what they gave up to get jordan groshans and then on a smaller scale what they gave up to get xavier edwards these are both players that don't have a whole lot to learn in the minors anymore and they both play several infield positions it feels like they made those acquisitions with the mind that One of them, at least, if not both of them, are going to have significant roles in the majors this coming year. So when you still have a full year of control over Wendell and Rojas, both of them still have some, not significant, but they have some positive trade value. And uh, just anticipating, I anticipate one of them getting traded just because this is the way the team is run. You know, When players are coming up on free agency, they'd rather get something in return than have them walk for nothing. Um, I Ideally, I, I've, I've mentioned this idea several times probably over the last calendar year. I love the idea of Wendell and Rojas platooning at shortstop. Rojas, historically, prior to last year, he was great at hitting lefties. And Wendell, kind of the opposite, where he's much better at hitting righties. And, I mean, both of them are solid at shortstop, with Rojas being better than solid. I'd, I'd love for them to just platoon there, have Segura third, have Jazz at second, figure something out at first base, potentially add something as we're going to get into, add something at first base, an additional Cooper. Um, I wish it was that easy. It feels like it should be that easy. As long as you have a team that's willing to spend to a certain level to plug gaps um, on the roster. And to this point, you know, the Marlins have just stopped a little short of that of spending what it takes to build a complete roster. So I feel like they can coexist Rojas and Wendell along with Segura um, I get the feeling that Wendell could be traded to a team like the Red Sox. He has value to a lot of other teams. Um, Probably more value than he has with the Marlins at this particular moment.
2: Yeah, and speaking of the Red Sox, the player in mind for Miami that has been talked about is Tristan Gassas, first baseman with the Red Sox, um, from Miami, born in Miami, went to American Heritage. Um, And you're looking at some of his stats. It might not be eye-popping, but... The one thing that really stands out to me, you look at his batting average, 197, but then you look at his OPS, 766, OPS plus of 113. Lewis, what is there to really look at at Tristan Gosses when you look at these stats? He has a batting average under 200, but his OPS and OPS plus puts him above average in terms of a major league um, hitter, despite only less than 80 plate appearances last season.
0: Well, yeah, I believe it was 95 plate appearances that he had Mm -hmm. at the big leagues, but again, you know, it's the it's the it's the eye and Eli touched on this um, I believe on the last Fish Stripes live that he you guys did when you were discussing the Segura signing initially. Cassis, you know, it was 95 plate appearances. We can't go crazy about you know a player after 95 plate appearances. You know, people are going crazy about Gary Sanchez after 38 games or something or 50 plus games with the Yankees and. You know, that's a larger sample, and he turned out to be a not a bust, but he wasn't the player that they expected. Cassis just had, you know, he walked 20% of the time, though, if we can embellish on that a little bit. And I believe, you know, Eli, I think you mentioned this too, a near one to one strikeout to walk ratio in his time with the Red Sox. You know, he did, you know, he struggled initially, but at the end, he was putting together great at bats. You know, he hit for a little bit of power. Um, Yeah, he's just a guy that, you know, he, and even what he's done in the, the Dominican Winter League, like he may have only been hitting like 220, but he's walking a lot. And it's a small sample, it's three games. But that track record goes all the way back to the minor leagues. He, you know, career 374 OBP, doing it with, you know, plus power. Um, you're not going to get much by way of defense. I mean, he's a first baseman. And I think, Eli, you said too on the stream, the initial Segura stream he, you know, he's pretty much just a first baseman and nothing else. He's never, I believe he had played third base a little bit um, in high school. And I think that was a position that people thought he could have played in the minor leagues. But, you know, he's obviously pretty big for his uh, his age. He's going to be 23 or be 24. Um, yeah, we don't know. We don't see him, you know, possessing anything beyond being a first base DH type. But the thing is, it's he, you know, you could, and that makes you know for some people who just aren't aware of age you're going to say like don't you already have that type in Garrett cooper and yes but the difference is age obviously you know the older you get um you know obviously you know your bats your eye slows down so the bat speed inherently is going to slow down um you want the youth in your lineup though i think if you trade the likes of wendell who as eli noted and if you were to Peru's Fielding Bible, you'd see is a terrific defender at multiple infield positions. I think even you trade Rojas too, you're definitely going to sacrifice some defense for offense. It's maybe like a Philadelphia Phillies-esque kind of move, but consider it like Alec Bone with much better plate discipline in that he's not a great defender now, but he's going to hit to the point where that may almost not even matter to you. Like Pete Alonso isn't a great defensive first baseman, but nobody's going to talk about Pete Alonzo. And the first thing they're going to talk about is, wow, this guy is a terrific defender. You're going to talk about the fact that he has consistent 40 homer prowess. And whether or not Cass has achieved that, he doesn't necessarily need to. It's just he does enough as far as controlling the strike zone and getting on base that he can mitigate some of his deficiencies in his game. And again, that's something that the Marlins need. They don't, I believe they were like 25th in collective team on base percentage this year, so not good. You immediately plug a guy like that into your lineup, though, like I said, you would be foregoing some defense. And that could, in turn, maybe slightly affect uh, the way your pitchers perform, although it may be minuscule. But I don't want to do a disservice to advanced defensive metrics because I do think they're important. But you would sacrifice a little bit of that to get this kind of bat in your lineup. But again, I think it's a risk worth taking given what he can do for you in the batter's box.
1: Uh, Well, I think it is a risk worth taking from the Marlins. I'm not going to go too much into Casas because I think what some people have glossed over is that there's not mutual interest in having a Casas trade come together. The Red Sox are not going to trade Tristan Casas right now. They just finished last place in their division. If you look at it right now, how the team projects currently, they could finish last place again in their division in 2023. They're not going to trade away a guy who is, by most people's accounts, their number one prospect and who still has the most desirable aspect with him is that he still has all of his years of control, remaining six years of club control, minor league options if something goes wrong. just I think he's going to only just now turn 23 years old. From the Red Sox, they're a team that, um, despite being in a big market, they're not always in win-now mode. And with the Devers extension, just going back to that, that really took off the pressure for them to – try to win right now. I don't think they're going to involve him in a type of deal just to bring in um, one of the Marlins non-Sandy starting pitchers. But what I think this does tell us and what this whole Marlins offseason has told us they have not been shy about inquiring about first baseman, whether it's via free agency or via trade, despite having all-star, I'm putting air quotes, all-star Garrett Cooper slot at first base right now. They're clearly not satisfied with him as the long-term everyday solution and heading into what's going to be his final year of club control. At this stage in the offseason, there's still some first baseman out there. I think you covered that on a previous version of Fishology, that there's still some free agents out there at first base that could sign. If not, there's the trade route. And what the Casas rumor tells me is that we should have our eye on potentially other first baseman trade candidates that have multiple years of control. I just jotted down a few that, even though this is the latest rumor, let's not have short memories. You know, there was a rumor maybe a month ago about the twins being willing to trade Luis Arise who plays first base as well as several other the positions in order to get pitching. I don't, uh, I, it's not like that is going to be completely dead. I don't think so. The twins still need pitching and the Marlins are still, as this rumor suggests, still interested in first base, whether it's Arise, whether it's Alex Kirilov, who used to be an outfield prospect who has learned first base along the way. And like Casa still has, I think five, I think in his case, it's five years of control remaining. Um, that's another guy where you could acquire him without necessarily putting together a huge package. He'd be more attainable because he's um, not not quite all checks every box the way that Casas does. Um, Who else on the same vein? I think probably the one that seems most realistic to me is Seth Brown of the Oakland A's. A lot of first base this past season, naturally an outfielder, but the A's are anything that's... Nailed to the floor, they're willing to trade, especially when it comes to veterans. And he, despite being 30 years old, he still has four years of the club control remaining. He still has a nice balance of power and plate discipline. He might not be a true everyday hitter, but he is a lefty bat, and that seems to be something that they're prioritizing, if at all possible, in these kind of deals. That's my big takeaway from this rumor. Casas is the pipe dream. Casas is the name coming up from the Marlins side. Um, I don't think he's attainable right now, but I think it does reinforce this idea that one of the final moves we could see this offseason, I mean, the hope is that they find an everyday center fielder. Um, I think what's going to be more attainable is an everyday first baseman type or something close to it. And I think that's very much top of mind with this front office is trying to address that position and somewhat for this coming year, but especially for 2024 and beyond.
2: Yeah, if, any final thoughts, um, Eli, Lewis, either about Segura, Casas, uh, Wendell, Rojas, before we go, or are you guys ready to just you uh, guys over to already talking about it for this episode?
0: Well, I mean, there's a name I can throw out that me and Eli teased before the show. Um, I have a piece coming out on Fish Stripes later this week about uh, kind of guys that the Marlins could possibly take a flyer on. Um, a guy who has first base experience, though he primarily played left field um, for the Padres, was Jerks Profar. We know he's naturally an infielder, but he presents a degree of positional versatility. He like Segura, has a better balance than Segura of plate discipline and the ability to not strike out. I believe Segura um, Profar struck out less than sixteen percent of the time, and he walked at an eleven percent clip. And he was an above, and we saw he was an above average hitter in San Diego last season, despite only hitting 15 home runs. So that maybe gives you some confidence that he, he may translate well, and he could be an option there. Uh, Cooper doesn't have to play every day. It could also allow Solaire time to DH um, more often. Um, so I think that may be an option. And I, in the piece that I'm writing, I'll, pre, I'll preface by saying that I think it wouldn't take more than maybe what the Marlins had offered um, Brennan Drury, who another utility guy who would later sign with the angels um, I believe Eli had reported it was 17 plus million. And then we had a following Barry Jackson piece that came out at the Miami Herald, I believe, that said it was about 19 offered to him over two years. But that Drew you know, grew up in that area and that he, you know, just obviously wanted to play for some town team, So that's kind of why he did what he did. But, you know, what you do when some teams do when they don't get a particular player, players, they reallocate that money to other needs that they need. And, you know, if we're talking about not obtaining a Casas right now, and you don't want to completely denigrate your defense, then get a guy who's got the versatility in Profar to maybe be a John Birdie with a better bat.
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah. With Profar,
1: um, he's a tough one because a million years ago, he was like the number one prospect in all of baseball. And at times, the, the offensive numbers overall have looked good um, I mean, what concerns me is despite being like relatively young, the speed is kind of going like it's at this point, he's not even the fast player anymore. You mentioned John Birdie, but I mean, John Birdie would run laps around far at this point. And like, I don't, he's somebody that he, I think a big hope is that he'll benefit with the shifts going away. He's the opposite of Segura in that respect, and that he was shifted a lot and it took away a lot of hits. And You have your fingers crossed that he's going to find more hits, that his BABIP is going to go up in the future. Um, but that's a lot of wish-casting to do if you're going to commit a multi-year deal for him. Um, Yeah, there's a whole lot of directions that they could go, and if they are a newest report the day that we're recording, a new report reinforcing the idea that they're open to trading any of their big league starting pitchers aside from Sandy, um, if that pitcher is Pablo, that unloads some salary that they'd be even more willing to spend on a position player than they already are at the moment. Um, This is, yeah, it's going to sound like a broken record, but I don't think they're done yet. Like, I do think there is another bet coming one way or the other. So that's kind of the message I wanted to leave people with, is that they're going to do something to add more offense. And um, we hope that it's multiple things that they do in that respect. But at the very least, they're going to do one thing that brings them, you know, that makes it more realistic to see this being a competent, uh, consistent offense, the opposite of what it was last year.
2: Yeah. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Talking Segura, Casas, Rojas, Wendell, um, first baseman, potentially for the Marlins. We have a lot of great things coming up um, next week. Stay tuned. A lot of great things, streams, uh me and noah going on an adventure next wednesday you might want to stay tuned for that but for fishology for eli for lewis for myself daniel remember always go fish